This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We have a saying on Gush, one plus one doesn't equal two, one plus one equals one. This is Jeff Barnes with Angel Investors Network, and we just got done recording another incredible episode of Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions with Chris Joyce, the founder of Gusher.co. And I want you to listen to this, whether you are an investor, you're a fund manager, you're an entrepreneur, you're a startup, or you're looking at getting involved in startups, because Chris and I talked a lot about what it actually takes to make a company successful, not a small business, but an actual entrepreneurial venture that's going to scale and grow and achieve an exit. And he gave us some incredible nuggets and strategies and ideas about how to build a successful team, how to find the right team for a company, and how to make sure that that team works together really well to grow a business so it can achieve a mega valuation and a great exit. So dive right in. Can't wait to hear what your thoughts are. As always, subscribe, like, share. Let us know what you think of the episode. Thanks so much. All right, Chris. So thanks so much for being here at the Angels Exits and Acquisitions podcast. Really appreciate having you here. Um, so first off, before we dive into too much, why don't you give people just a really quick background about who you are, where you're from, and kind of really basically what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Joyce. I'm founder and CEO of Gusher Co. Uh, we also, I'm founder and CEO of 24 other companies across all different industries, all different verticals, everything from manufacturing to medical device, consumer goods, I've had my products sold in more than 11,000 stores all across the globe. I've got users of my tech products, I think, in more than 148 countries at last count. Uh, And my newest venture is Gusher, uh, which is a platform to launch companies without the need for capital, without the need for investors. And we've got more than 350 different portfolio companies across the globe in all different verticals, all different businesses. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, I've started up a number of businesses myself. I can imagine the reason you guys went into Gusher. But, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of startups uh, misunderstand is just how damn difficult it is to actually get a real company up and running, right? I mean, everybody, oh, yeah. we, we hear all these web, these uh, these gurus out there talking about how great it is. Just go start your own business. No problem. Raise some capital. No big deal. Like, like come on. Like, let, let's be real. That, there's a reason you guys started Gusher, right? <laughs> Uh, Jeff, it's total bunk. I mean, the fact of the matter is when it comes to starting a business, you either have to be ignorant, a masochist or desperate or have no other options. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, because uh, going through the process, what we call the furnace, you know, I don't know many people that would willingly go through a furnace to come out the other side and be this better person in a better company. Uh, but that's literally what it is. It's, it's an extremely long process. Uh, It's something where the higher the ability that you have to delay gratification, the more success that you have. Uh, And it's really fighting day in and day out for very long periods of time with an occasional great thing that happens that keeps you hopefully motivated and fueled to go on to that next thing. There's a lot of loneliness and a lot of a lot of, uh, I don't know, just desperation in between that gets kind of ugly, what we call the gray area. 
Yeah, absolutely. The crazy ones that we are, right? You know, yeah. I know that uh, um, I, I read a study a while back that said that entrepreneurs and leaders of the world have a hint of psychopathy in them, right? <laughs> and I really do. I see that as being true. Like you have to be a little bit psychotic to even attempt to do this. And we're not even talking like it's different from going and starting a small business versus yeah. being an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. So I tell the people this all the time, but I, I'd love your take on that. The difference between being a small business owner versus an entrepreneur. Uh, there, there's a huge difference. So a small business owner is really somebody that does what I call a linear business, a lifestyle business. There's nothing wrong with that. It's something that they know they're going to have typically as tip a set amount of hours. They have a set location, not really looking to grow it in a really big way. They're not doing something that hasn't necessarily been done before. Maybe they have a slight variation, but they're not really going for the big time. Uh, with an entrepreneur, what we're really doing is we're playing in a different ball field. We are swinging that bat every damn time for a grand slam to get a home run. We're not there for these little singles uh, and little doubles that maybe add up and which are great and phenomenal. Uh, but we really like to create and fundamentally create hopefully something that's new, something that's different, uh, something that has a different DNA, a different way of looking at things. I, I know that's why I do it. I never do the same business twice. Uh, because it drives me crazy. I'm just not interested in it. I like new things. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of just pure boredom that comes with running the same thing over and over again. And I think that's really one of the biggest differences between a lot of entrepreneurs, small business owners, and then the rest of the world, right? The civilians out there who don't really want to ever start a business, let alone start a scaling business, right? Is that I find that most entrepreneurs, and this is why entrepreneurs struggle with shiny object syndrome so much, right? They get so bored yeah, so we, quickly. Of course. we Well, we call it squirrel syndrome. So it's kind of like you take your dog for a walk and the dog sees a squirrel. What's it do? It takes off like a rocket and, you know, tries and tugs at you and everything else. Well, almost in a way, it, when you're starting a business, you know, you may be fundamentally wired for that to go to the next big thing, uh, the next idea, whatever it may be. Uh, but unfortunately, no matter how great it is, you have to learn very, very quickly to say no. Uh, even if it's a phenomenal idea, even if it, you think it may have more potential, if you're on a road and you're going down it and you're, at least for me, um, I see that road to the very end. Uh, I don't start something and just continually start something. I start and finish it. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental difference between being a successful entrepreneur and maybe an entrepreneur that wants to be successful is that you pay the hellacious price of time in order to go ahead and do that and seeing it through, even though you may have these great, great opportunities that always appear out of magically out of nowhere that may seem better. And they aren't, that's grass is greener syndrome almost always. And they always come right when you're at your low. It's kind of like a test of the universe uh, to see how much you really want your original idea, your original business to make it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now let's be honest. Were you always like that? Were you always the guy that's like, okay, I'm going to see the one thing through all the way? I mean, after two dozen businesses, I got to imagine at least a couple of them were like, hey, let's veer a little bit then the, before you finally figured it out. Well, I mean, it depends on your definition of veer. So, you know, I, I'm of the belief that typically whatever business uh, start, whatever the road that it starts out on a business, almost always it stays on that exact same road, having seen it uh, numerous times. So myself personally, you know, do pivots exist? Sure. Do successful pivots exist? Absolutely. Um, but are they rare uh, when it comes at the numbers? Yes, absolutely. Now, do iterations occur? So 
have I had a consumer goods company where we had this food company? Did we create six, seven, eight different iterations from packaging to the way that we are manufacturing ingredients, everything else over a period of a year? Yeah. And they were big, big changes as to how we operated, but was still the fundamental core business. Uh, for me personally, I never went from idea to idea. I always saw it out and really had the discipline to do that. I don't even know if it was discipline. I just create task lists and I need to check it off. And one of those is it's got to get to those numbers, those sales volume numbers, or I don't stop. That's really what, what the goal was. No, that's awesome. So what I find with a lot of entrepreneurs is that the, the, they'll have the visionary entrepreneur that sees it as clear as day, right? They know where they're going. A lot of them don't know how to get there. They think they know how to get there, but a lot of them, they just know where they're going. But then you get these people that from time to time, they will veer. I call those the entrepreneurs, right? They're the ones that are like, okay, I wanted this, but now I want that. Actually, this sounds cool. Let's try this, right? The you know squirrel syndrome, like you were saying. So at the end of the day, it's really that goal of, of being there. And I'd say that you know, you're talking about the numbers, like the numbers are really important. Of course, we have to track, we have to know, we have to work. That's how we measure what we're getting. But was the number really the goal for you or was it something bigger than that? Well, you got to understand when when I started real businesses and I'm going to say real businesses, meaning, okay, it wasn't a dog washing thing. It wasn't a lemonade stand. It wasn't selling, you know, as a kid door to door. Um, I learned at a very young age. uh, I used to go to these score meetings. I used to skip school, wasn't smoking, drinking or doing drugs or anything like that. I skipped school, went to uh, Columbus, Ohio to go to something called score meetings senior core of retired executives. And there I thought was fundamentally taught how to write a business plan and really what's considered now an old school methodology. And so I would actually write out these very well thought out business plans, you know, about 80 pages, 100 pages deep. And for me, part of that business plan was those numbers. And those numbers was really, really figuring that business out and making damn sure it was valid. So for me, it was like crossing off a list. It was it was checking it off. Uh, so it wasn't about, let's say, necessarily impact. It wasn't about change. It was about money, very big in the beginning stages when I started out. Now it's actually become the opposite. It's become more about impact. It's become, as I've gotten older, about ha- helping as many people as possible, uh, having an impact in a great way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the metrics are kind of different as to how we proceed from here. All right, very cool. Yeah, and I, I love that because, of course, when we're younger, what do we want? We want the money. We want the fame. We want the fortune. We want all the stuff, right? With the glitz and the glam. Sure. And, you know, as we go through it, once that even comes in, you're like, okay, that was really cool. And some people, it takes a lot longer to even get to that. It was really cool stage. But then there's other people that are like, okay, well, that's actually not really that much fun anymore. And I'm assuming you kind of fall on that spectrum somewhere. So before we go into like why you start all the different ones, I, I really want to ask this question, which is, did you have... Like going back to like the first one or the first couple that you started, did you have the intention of running a business for the rest of your life, running that business for the rest of your life? Or did you have another goal in mind when you set out? My goal really when I set out was to go ahead and I'll tell you, this is going to sound crazy. All right. And this is going to be circular and it's not meant as self-promotion. Okay. But I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, Fairborn, Ohio. And I saw my mom struggling to put a roof over our heads. Uh, working a low-level secretarial buyer job uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, and literally, she always had these great business ideas, but there was no such thing as a venture capital ecosystem in Ohio. There still isn't, uh, no matter what anybody says. Uh, there, She was a female in the 80s, so good luck being a female getting funding. But she always had these brilliant business ideas. She was ahead of her time. 
Now, during that period, she could never get anything off the ground. And that kind of always stuck with me. Later in life, she was able to make it in her 50s, you know, thank God, in a, in a very big way. Uh, but seeing that had an impact upon me from a young age. And that kind of always stuck in the back of my head. Uh, so it was always for me, business wasn't about really necessarily making money, even though I kind of played that off a little bit in the beginning. Uh, it really was about learning and going from step to step and just getting scaling up in terms of my knowledge and trying new things just because I'm not an artist. I can't paint, but I'm very good at starting businesses. So that was really almost in a way my form of expression, my self-expression, my way of learning about me, uh, my way of learning about the world in general and how that works and how people work. You know, I'm still learning to this day how people work and how the business works. Yeah, they, they, they come in all different shapes and sizes and backgrounds and surprise you in the weirdest way sometimes, don't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so going back to, you know, even before you started your business, because I have a similar background, right? Like parents, blue collar workers. My dad was self-employed, worked his butt off like 70, 80 hours a week and things like that. Yep. And I just remember that question of being like, you know, why is it that some people can work so hard and as a kid? And you always think your parents work hard. Why is it some people can work so hard and still not get ahead? And I feel like that was what put me down that path. Right. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of people that will have they'll, they'll see that same thing. They'll say, yeah, I see this person working their butt off my parents, my grandparents, my cousins, whatever, and they're not getting ahead. And they, but they still don't choose being an entrepreneur. They still don't choose the business side. Right. So is there something else that, you know, maybe when you were looking at it, it, it was it your mom coming in and saying, like, having all these ideas and sharing them with you? Like, what was that final tipping point for you to say, this is what I want to start trying to do? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. I mean, when I was nine years old, and I remember it to this day, and it's a story I tell regularly, um, I had created a new type of brake for cars. So I had this new idea for a car brake. I wrote it down. I created a whole diagram, everything else as I had to go ahead and make this brake. And I took it to my mom. And my mom goes, oh, that's great, but take it to your stepfather. Now, I didn't mention my stepfather earlier because that's a whole other side of it, right? Uh, but my stepfather was an electrical engineer by training. And so when I took it to him, uh, he literally eviscerated it. Uh, he gutted me. He was an SOB and he was not a nice guy and to begin with. Uh, a very, I don't want to say evil person, but he probably had a bad childhood himself because uh, he came out warped in certain ways. But that, that example of when he shit on me from that very beginning stage, when I had that piece of paper and everything else, you know, I didn't cower down in fear. I didn't go ahead and doubt myself. I didn't go ahead and say, oh, you're right, uh, you know, and, and take it from an engineer's perspective. I was basically like, fuck you. And basically from then on out, it was, I just did what the hell I wanted to do and screw anybody else. I know that sounds kind of crazy, uh, but I decided right then and there, I'm doing what I want to do, not what anybody else says I should be doing. Uh, and that set me on my path. And I just love the idea of being able to be in charge of my own destiny. Uh, over the years, you know, you were talking about uh, your dad and how people can work so hard, uh, you know, and not really get anywhere. Well, you know, there's a fundamental difference between generating cash and generating income and creating wealth. One is very much a building process, just like putting a brick down, brick by brick by brick, building up a company to generate that wealth. Another is just, okay, you have income income coming in and you're trading, hopefully, maybe time for hours or something like that. They're very, very distinctive models. And you have to commit long term to building that damn thing, whatever the hell it is. And maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Chances are it's not going to work. But if you don't stop, chances are something will work. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's beautiful, man. So. 
that leads me into this other point, you know, the small business owner versus the entrepreneur versus the person. Cause a lot of us, we think these, these visionary entrepreneurs, like they can see the future so much better than the rest of us can. And they're going to help us create that. And in some cases, I would say maybe that's true. A lot of the time though, what I'm finding is that these people are finding a problem that just pisses them off and they want to solve it because this is driving them nuts. Right. And yep. they want to solve it. But a lot of them have no idea how to turn it into a business, right? Especially a business that generates wealth. And there's a big difference between a, a business that generates cash flow for you, like you said, a lifestyle business versus something that is exponential, scalable, and they can see an exit where other people can take it and go to the next level if they wanted to or whatever. So do you find that with all the entrepreneurs that you work with and the businesses you work with, do you find that there are certain mindsets that are more pervasive in the successful people versus the ones who maybe peter out? I think it's really two things, and, and it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with, let's say, their educational background, their financial background, their geographic location. It has nothing to do, because we have a lot, of, a lot of founders on our platform and we tracked a lot of this. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. It has nothing to do with their country of origin. It has nothing to do with their religious beliefs. Uh, but it does have to do with two things that we've seen, okay? It has to do with, with 100% their ability to delay gratification. That is the number one thing, the ability to delay gratification, okay? And number two is, and this kind of goes in hand, and it may be just another flavor of it, uh, but really just the refusal, the absolute refusal to stop no matter what the universe throws at them. I don't care whether it's, you know, their partner stealing from them, whether it's, a, I don't know, a tax injunction, whether it's COVID, whether it's a natural disaster, uh, whether or not half their family leaves them because they 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 can't stand what they're doing and it's not happening. I mean, it's literally, quite literally, digging their feet in the ground and saying, it doesn't matter what happens, I'm not changing paths in what I want to accomplish. They may change the way of what they're doing, you know, that, that little iteration as to how they're doing it, but they don't change the main goal of what they're going after under any condition, period. I think that's so important, right? Because when... You know, when you're investing in a company, when you're looking at a company and you're saying, okay, I love this idea. And we do these things every week where we do free pitch events for companies that want to come in and just pitch. And then we get a little bit of coaching and feedback for free. But what we're finding with a lot of these entrepreneurs that we've seen that are successful is they may or may not take any advice that we, we give them, right? For better or worse. But one thing is for certain that we've seen, which I think you hit on perfectly, is that so even if they don't take our advice, they'll say, come hell or high water, I'm going to figure this out. I don't really care what you say about my pitch, about my presentation, about my branding, about my product. It doesn't really matter. I'm figuring this damn thing out. And I have nothing but respect for those people because, you know, at some point you got to say, okay, maybe this idea is not the best one, but I love your attitude, right? I love that you're going to go, go for this. And those people will, you know, run through water, fire, rainstorms, you know, jump over a crack in the earth if that's what it's going to take for them to get to their dreams. And I love that you guys measured that. But when you guys are looking at presentations, pitches, you know, these companies, how do you get to that? How do you figure that out? And not just the people that are trying to pull the wool over your eyes. You got to have to understand, and I'm going to take this back to what I just said when I was nine years old, okay? Just because an idea is bad, doesn't mean that you kill it, all right? So there's these all things that, oh, if it's bad, kill it, fail fast, do whatever. It, it's BS, it's bullshit. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
The path to a great idea, the path to a great business, isn't that suddenly you have this great idea for a great business, it's executed, and then a year later, you were handed checks by Silicon Valley, now you're going ahead and you're a multi-billion dollar business and that's it. That's the fairy tale, okay? What typically happens is you have a bad idea. Your little baby idea is considered ugly by everybody else. But because you keep it alive, that idea then morphs into a better idea and then a better idea. And then it attracts other people into the company that now make it a better idea. And then it attracts more people. And maybe you get a couple zealot customers in the beginning that now get the sales. And we call it the uglies, smalls, mediums, and bigs. That's the process. Something starts out really, really ugly, but you don't kill it at that stage. If anything, it should be market-driven, not not an individual decision, which is what our whole platform is based upon. But you get these uglies that then turn into smalls, and then you get the mediums and bigs. And that's the same thing with any process of learning, if you think about it. You're always dealing with the ugly process in the beginning. You don't quite know what you're doing. Then you kind of get a grasp on it. You have these smalls, but that's not really able to be built upon or scaled upon. That's like the lifestyle stuff. But then you get the mediums, the bigs that come in whenever they choose to come in. You can't make it happen. They just start coming in as a result of, you know, the universe's timing. And then suddenly you have a real business. And that's the way it's actually done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every every serious business that's ever scaled to anything notable has had to go through that, right? PayPal can start off as this amazing payment platform that we have today. And I think a lot of people tend to forget about the countless hours they spent going back and forth and figuring out not just the technology, but the banking system. Jeez Louise. I mean, just so much stuff they had to deal with. So absolutely. But getting back to it, like, how do you guys like if, if an investor like just put in the investor hat on, right? Investor sees the you know 20, 30 companies pitch at a demo day or something like that. And they they 20 out of 30 are great ideas in the investor's mind, right? Obviously all 30 are great ideas for the entrepreneurs, otherwise they wouldn't be there, right? But the investor has to believe in at least the idea and that there's a, a problem in the market that this idea, this solution is going to take care of, right? So we tell people you invest in the jockey, not just the horse, right? You've got to yeah. look at the jockey because at the end of the day, if they can't persevere the little hiccups, right? I mean, how many businesses that COVID shut down and the, the hard times because they just they didn't have the ability to stick through and they had to go back and get a job or whatever they could or or they chose to take the unemployment because unemployment is paying better than my current salary as an entrepreneur right and sure. you don't want to invest in those companies right you want to avoid those companies at all costs so what do you guys do to try and help people understand for, on the investor side of the table right the entrepreneur we get but on the yep. investor side of the table how do you figure that out well, let me let me tell you an example. It's going to be a circuitous right route, but it will make sense at the end, okay? There's something called the vested interest market, the VIM, V-I-M, okay? The vested interest market is the people that have the most to gain from the success or failure of the company, okay? Let me give you a quick example. There's a company on our platform called Happy Howl. Happy Howl came into our platform. Uh, he had a sick dog. I'll save you the long story. Uh, ended up hacking together his own dog food because his dog was dying and his dog magically came to life, Okay. So he wanted to go ahead and start a dog food company. Now, I don't know what you know about dog food companies, but dog food companies have been around for more than 100 years. They're entrenched. They're embedded. It's an extremely capital-intensive business, uh, and it's brutal to be able to take over real estate or penetrate that market whatsoever, okay? So he said, I want to start a dog food company. And I said, sure, let's start a dog food company, okay? So he goes ahead and he starts recruiting his team and putting his team together. 
And on our platform, it's, it's what's called performance-based equity, okay? Uh, basically, it's a way to go ahead and leapfrog generational development. You don't need money. Whatever you can do with a million or two million, you can do with Gusher uh, with zero dollars. So anyway, he goes ahead and brings in his, uh, his first team, and his team had to manage $50 million, $100 million, $200 million budget, okay? Uh, real pros. Uh, companies like they had McElhaney, Tabasco, people from there, Nabisco or Mondelez, whatever the hell it's called now, uh, people that had knew, known what they were doing. Six weeks later, the company implodes. It fails miserably. All right. He finally listens to me and does what I tell him to do. Uh, a year later, a year and a half later, they're worth more than 10 million. They've got national distribution. They're growing on average 30% month over month. Although last year, uh, last month, they did 92% month uh, over growth. Uh, and sure enough, they've done it with zero dollars. All right. How did they do it? Well, his second team all had something in common. The first team did not. Now, Jeff, I want you to think like an eight-year-old. This is not a trick question, okay? It is not a trick question. What do you think his second team all had in common that the first team did not? Think like an eight-year-old. It's a dog food company. Yeah, they probably all had dogs that wanted to live forever. Right. They just didn't have dogs. They didn't have kids. So they were dog parents. They were dog zealots. They ate dog, breathed dog, pooped dog. They knew everything about dogs. So what happens is when those people join that company, they were there. It's our thesis that companies made up of them, vested interest market. People that join that company, not for a paycheck, but for equity, because who the hell is going to join a company uh, for equity unless they fundamentally believe in it? All right. Anybody will take a paycheck. But if they join for equity, now you're not just betting on the jockey. You're betting on the whole team that bought into that concept. That's them. And that's why we've got 80, more than a little bit more than 80 percent success rate where they become self-sustaining and or attract larger scale capital. It's fundamentally a different way of creating a company. That's that's genius, too. Right. It is one of those things that if you have a great team around you, you're going to go a lot further. Right. There's that saying, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And we all fundamentally understand that. But I think a lot of people struggle with figuring out how to do that. Right. And I think you just hit the nail on the head. Right. If you want to recruit the people who are going to take you farther, it's kind of like Simon Sinek's idea, start with why, but you're not even telling your brand story to try and recruit customers. You're trying to tell your story to recruit team, right? Is that kind of the Absolutely, but, but listen to this part. So that's our number one validation when, with our thesis. So if a founder is able to recruit one person into their team for performance-based equity, we have a saying on Gusher, one plus one doesn't equal two, one plus one equals done meaning that those are the companies that go on to create product. Those are the ones that have companies that were able to come to market, become self-sustaining. If the founder is not able to go ahead and bring anybody on, they can't tell the story the right way. They can't move the needle when it comes to recruiting and inspiring and having people see what they're actually building and getting them. Then those are the companies they fail. They fail in the very beginning and they save everybody a hell of a lot of money and time in doing so. Good deal first, money second. You got to bring that team in. Get that product to market, have actual sales, then you actually get capital if you need it. It doesn't work the other way around. Absolutely. And I'm assuming that's why Gusher was born, right? Because Absolutely. you've gone through this yourself. You've, you've either invested in companies, you've looked at companies, you've advised companies, you're like, oh. So what was it that was like that impetus where you finally said, okay, I've got to put this thing together? What made you want well, to actually I, I remember to this day, I was at a meeting uh, down in Washington, D.C. at a venture capital meeting, and I ran across a group of founders that, well, 
and this was DC. They, they didn't look like everyone else. They didn't talk like everyone else. They weren't wearing hoodies and they didn't attend Stanford. Uh, they didn't live in New York, Silicon Valley or Israel. Uh, yet their ideas were brilliant, but they didn't have a, a chance in hell of getting venture capital. Uh, because, you know, most VCs operate under patterns. Uh, they look for a certain pattern. They look for a certain way of doing it. If you don't fit that pattern, you're X'd out. So just by them being in Washington, D.C. itself, uh, went ahead and said that 99.99% of investors aren't going to potentially invest in you, uh, especially the, the higher echelon VC. So I said, hmm, I wonder if there's a way to go ahead and show people the way that I've done businesses, which I've done this for years, I mean, actually decades, I wonder if there's a way to do it. So I went ahead and talked to my partners. Uh, we gushered, gusher. We put out our first version uh, just to see. It took off like a rocket. We took it down. Uh, it took us about 12, 15, 18 months to figure out the legal background uh, to make damn sure that what we were doing wouldn't run into any issues with that. And then we released our beta version, and now we've just taken off like a rocket. So it's really the impetus of seeing that specific group down in D.C. in conjunction with my mom from a long time ago. Yeah, it's it's all about putting the right people around you that can support you, believe in you, and and not only believe in you and the vision, but carry the torch as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, as a founder, no one who you bring on, I don't care who it is, is ever going to be as passionate about your business or care about your baby as much as you are. So it's a question of really the degrees. You know, you want to stay away from those uglies and smalls and deal with more of the mediums and bigs when you're building your team. Uh, you know, you can deal with a couple mediums, but you want at least one or two bigs, people who really get what you're doing that obviously have that same sense of urgency uh, and ownership mentality when it comes to it. Because when you're creating a business, a startup, uh, the more people that have that ownership mentality in the beginning, uh, that's literally a godsend. You, you, you can't measure their weight in gold in terms of their value. It's phenomenal. So how does Gusher work then in that capacity to, I, I, I don't know if it would be matchmaking would be the best term that you'd use or vetting people. And, and, you know, if I'm the investor on the investor side of the thing, that's like, okay, I want to be involved in companies that are going to take off. I want to be involved in companies that I believe in. Right. And investors are generally looking at it from a passive perspective, but that's not necessarily what you guys are looking at, looking for. Right. Well, yeah, really it's a couple things. So what we do is we provide the structure. Number one, we provide the structure to be able to do it. So we have a flow of applicants that apply to these companies to join their company in exchange for performance-based equity. Uh, there's no salaries, nothing else like that. It's just based upon performance. It's not sweat equity. It's not based upon time. It's based upon achievement, meaning that nobody gets a damn thing unless that company is able to achieve its goals, able to achieve its objectives, because who the heck wants equity in a dead company, a, a DOA? Uh, including us. We don't want to. I, I have quite company. a bit of that, actually, <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Right. Every, everybody does. Uh, but when it comes to it, we provide that structure. We provide the knowledge. I mean, I can bore you with the details. There's 300 different micro steps. We know exactly how to usher them through and our platform does also. Uh, but really where the value add comes from is, is really the big stuff also. Meaning that as they already get their team, as they start developing it, it's, it's wrangling those investors. It's being able to open up the markets and help them go ahead and accelerate that aspect of it. But the initial thing is really the most important. Getting that, that team, that fundamental team of VIM players involved in the company, that's absolutely everything. I like that term, Vim. I'm going to have to start using that. I'm going to steal that from you, okay? <laughs> Vested interest market. It, it works. Uh, well, it's it's so important. You know, I've been 
I've been in businesses, sadly, where I thought we had a vested interest and the team aligned and we talked about equity share. And, you know, once we achieve certain benchmarks and then all of a sudden, whether it was backstabbing or misalignment of values or vision or things like that, and things fall apart. And it's just like, man, it's the worst thing when you have something like that happen. So having that vested interest, I think it's huge. Well, hear me out. So it's like anything, though. People are people, and you have landmine partners sometimes that you don't know they're a landmine. It just happens. Uh, approximately 10% of the roles, they end up rotating out. So you always have drop-off. You always have that. Uh, but there's also major league red flags, and we're experts at the red flags and identifying. So that's one of the things we take the founders through. So you may have done something like that, but you haven't done it, let's say, with the breadth of companies that we have. And so we know where those red flags are. We know exactly where they are. We know what the founders are saying. Uh, and we tell them exactly, hey, get rid of this person, rotate this out, rotate another person in, et cetera, et cetera. Because these teams don't always go ahead and actually do what you want them to do. Or you have five, six, seven players that are on the right side of it, and one person isn't performing. But remember, they don't get anything if they don't perform. And so if they don't perform, they should be gone. And so, you know, there's certain rules like the timeliness of it, the talking, the interactions, you know, the measuring of that is very, very important. Those nuances are everything when it comes to launching a company without anything uh, for performance-based equity. So what kind of companies do you guys like to see the most on Gusher? Or is it uh, really across not. everything? I, 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 we have everything from SaaS, fintech, AR, VR, AI, gaming, medical device, prop tech, uh, you name it, we've got it. Uh, B2B, B2C, B2B2C, platform, B2G. Uh, we've seen no difficulty really in anything. We thought we would have difficulty with certain medical-oriented or bio uh, type of companies because it's really a different ecosystem, but we've been able to Gusher those companies also. Anything that you can do with like about $2 million in the bank, that's the way you have to think of as a founder. If you can do it with $2 million in the bank account right this second, you don't need that money. You can gusher it. We do it all day, every day, every type of company there is. That's awesome, man. Like, And that's such a huge value prop for these startups out there that are struggling, right? And, and we have to tell them a lot of times, we only have, we have a small team, we have small bandwidth, and we have to tell folks a lot of the time, hey, your business is not ready for investors. I'm sorry, but you got to go get, figure out, you know, your minimum viable product at least, right? Um, yeah, well, it's funny you say minimum viable product because we actually say we don't do, deal with MVPs at all. So for us, an MVP is the following. We actually say a market viable product. Uh, meaning that we're not interested in, in minimum viable products. When you're able to go ahead and attract the right team, that VIM, you're not there to create an MVP in the standard sense of the word. You're there to create a company where the main goal, the main goal from the very beginning is to go ahead and attack the low-hanging fruit to create a self-sustaining company from the very beginning. So that may be a zealot niche. It may be something that may be a smaller market than you, that, than you intend to go after. But what happens is when you attack that zealot market from the very beginning, when you have that zealot market in place, what happens is you're able to go ahead and use that zealot market to fund the creation of more of a generally oriented product to penetrate the marketplace. So you never want to think of this large, huge, gargantuan segment you're going after. It may be there, but you have to think of where the heck is my first sales coming from? Where, how do we go ahead and create a product to go after that? What does it have to be? You're not sitting there to create the Taj Mahal. You're creating something to generate revenue. And the only proof of concept or MVP in our book is one that generates revenue. Everything else is masturbation. It's a waste of time. You need to create revenue. Dollars. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. And it's funny too, because we talk about traction a lot with clients and companies say, listen, you got to get some sort of traction if you want to generate the interest of anyone, right? If you want Absolutely. anyone to come in. And so I, I tell them, I like most businesses for the most part are not R and so R and D heavy that it's going to take you 10 years to go to market, right? The, the vast majority of them, you don't need to, you know, be like a big pharma. We got to do, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, you got to go all this, like, forget about it. And we all love our idea. No, go to market, right? Like, that's what we need to do. We need to go to market and get it out there. And well, the, oh, sorry, the, no, I, I just love that idea that, you know, our minimum viable is, and our proof of concept is, can you actually get customers? Right? I yeah, but I, I, think, I think it comes from the wrong way of thinking. And I think it's honestly because of the way the venture capital industry really evolved. Um, beforehand, years ago, companies weren't created this way. Uh, there was always the ability that you had to consider generating capital, generating sales, generating revenue from the get-go. Otherwise, you were DOA. There was no such thing as black hole research, which is what fundamentally all these companies are. There was no such thing as product market fit. Product market fit. Are you kidding me? You're going to create something that's then in search of product market fit. I say to its founders all day. I actually just uh, released something on video earlier today. I go, you know, I, I say to founders, and I said this numerous times this week, you're not a SaaS company. You're not a tech company. You are not a food and beverage company. Uh, you are not an electronic device company, a medical company. First and foremost, you are a sales and marketing company. And if you realize that you're a sales and marketing company, you put that at the very beginning, the first step before you even start developing, then what does it do to your frame of mind? What do you have to do? You've got to test sales and marketing. You have to see what the market reacts to. So one of the methodologies, and it's a very simple methodology that we used to do with retail-oriented products, is we would contact the buyers with a made-up or a mock-up one-page sell sheet and see if we had uptake, if people were interested in that product. Now it'd be okay, create a fake website and just see, do people sign up for that? Do they go through the orient process before you even create the product? Uh, we used to get product in, in Walmart and Target and everything before we even had the product created. Uh, so we'd get these meetings. We would then create the product after the order uh, to be able to fulfill it. And this were some technically oriented products, some some heavy duty stuff. Uh, but it's easier when you know there's a sale taking place. That's the way yeah. it should be created. No, a hundred percent. You know that that that's so important for not only the founders to understand, but again, if you're looking at investing in a company or being a part of a company and, and going down that path. That's really the only way you you validate a problem and a market, right? You know, you, you can't, yeah. we, we always talk about the, like the mom test, right? Or, you know, you ask the person, hey, would you buy this? You like this idea? Yeah, I would. Okay, pull it out of the trunk of your car and see if they'll buy it right then. And if they still say yes, okay, you probably got something, but most people won't. And so we have this idea that because, and I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs, I'm sure you have too. They have these amazing ideas. They're so elaborate. They want to tell you all about them. And you go, great. Who else has this problem? Have you even talked to them about it? Have you figured out, well, I mean, all these people have this problem, right? Like, have you proven it? And the only way you're really going to prove it, to be quite honest, is if you can sell something or at least get indications of interest at the bare minimum that somebody wants to buy it. Yeah, but there's so much information out there right now. If you can't find your zealot market, whatever the hell that is, your first people, your first community, you know, we always believe in building up, even if it's a small community of people, right at the very beginning stages for the sole reason that you're not launching into a cold marketplace when you do launch. 
you already have these people there that get what you're doing, that want to see the sausage being made. You know, and that zealot pitch, like what you use to go ahead and recruit your team of Vim uh, and your first community, which is Vim also, well, your first customers are going to be that, but also that pitch for recruiting and, and that Vim message, per se, that vested interest market message, how you talk to them, that is actually what enables you to penetrate the marketplace for your first customers. And then that message also then correlates to getting investors that are VIM, not usually generally, uh, not general investors, but the, they're VIM also. So for example, I had this low carb company, low carb manufacturer, which turned out to be the largest in the world. All right. But in the beginning stages, I went around door to door, uh, literally talking to people. I don't mean door to door, but to venture capital firms. Uh, and literally they, I was like hitting my head against concrete all day because they said, no, no, no. But if they were on a low-carb diet, if their wife was on a low-carb diet, if their kid was diabetic or something else like that, I didn't even have to pitch. They finished my sentences. And so that's the difference between selling to, let's say, a cold market and Vim. Vim finishes your sentences. They get it. And you can find your Vim right now. Uh, there are so many different market segments out there and so much data available. It's everywhere. And if not, you create it yourself. Definitely. No, that's so key right there, right? Going after even, and we we preach this all the time. If you're going to raise capital, you better go after the people that have the problem that you're trying to solve first. You know why Absolutely. would you not? Right, so important. Awesome, Chris. Hey, man, this has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing your story and learn a little bit more about what Gusher is. Why don't you tell everybody how they can find you, how they can connect with you and learn a little bit more about Gusher as well? Oh, sure. They can just go to gusher.co, G-U-S-H-E-R.co, gusher.co. I'm happy to help them out. It doesn't cost anything. You just sign on and you start going ahead and creating your startup. We jump in, help you get going, and hopefully your company is off and running to the races. Awesome. Chris Joyce, pleasure. Thanks so much for being here, man. Thanks for having me. 